So I am Stefan, the Director of Music and Worship here at First Covenant Church, and this past week, Pastor Evan has been out on a very well-deserved retreat on the West Coast, and so this morning I'll be filling in. Or as I like to put it, Junior Varsity is going to get some start time. <laughs> but in all seriousness, thank you guys so much for giving me the opportunity to speak before you guys um, about something that I've prepared, something that I've studied, and something that, like all of us, has a very real effect in our lives. So to start out, before we get too deep, I want to talk about the popular faux religion of our culture that I like to call good personism. The idea that we're socially evolved enough that we should realize we ought to be a good person just for the sake of being a good person, we'll talk about what that means in a second, but that we don't need any sort of religious institution or organization to do so. So if you talk to someone that subscribes to this point of view, you might say, well, what dictates being a good person? What does that mean? Because it's not as easy a question when you really think about it. What they won't want to admit, what it really comes down to is being a good person is whatever society says means to be a good person at that time. As Christians, that's alarming to us when you think about how it was acceptable to treat people a mere 50, much less 100 or 1,000 years ago. In fact, several of the triumphs of humanity for equality have been in contrast to what was an acceptable way to treat somebody. So we have an issue there with this idea of good person and the mindset right out the gate. But if we finally look at some specifics as in what does it mean to be a good person, well, you do good things. Be nice to people. If you have something to give, you know, give to someone in need, follow the laws. I usually find there's something missing. And it's something that we often are reluctant to or quick to oversee, even in Christian circles, too. Where does forgiveness play into this idea of good personism? Now, popular culture will tell us that if someone wrongs you, then they have wronged you, and you have the right to stand your ground and take whatever actions you deem necessary in that situation, having been wronged. Now, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm sorry I hurt you, I'd like to make amends, you can forgive them, or you cannot, or you have a third option, which you can nominally forgive them and say, I forgive you, thus fulfilling your obligation of being a good person without ever actually making any effort to mend the relationship that now has been strained. So I'll say it a couple times, but this is the first time I'll say it. That is not forgiveness. But even in Christian circles, when we talk about forgiveness, just this morning we prayed the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. We said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As we said that, did it just roll off our mouths if we said it a thousand times? Or do we actually mean that we want to try and forgive as we've been forgiven? So what's the challenge here? It's easy. Forgiveness is hard. It goes against our sinful nature and our desire for self-preservation to be that vulnerable. The idea that if someone wronged us once, if we forgive them, we're opening the door for them to wrong us again, is completely counter to what we desire as humans. Warren Wearsby said, When we start living in an atmosphere of humility and honesty, we must take some risks and expect some danger. Unless humility and honesty result in forgiveness, relationships cannot be mended and strengthened. Relationships cannot be mended and strengthened. That's why we have this need for forgiveness. But even beyond the relationship that needs to be mended, think about in your own personal life what happens when you don't forgive someone, especially someone who seeks out your forgiveness. To say you hold a grudge is kind of a very passing, you know, quick way of saying it. It eats you up inside, and you fume over it. And then all of a sudden, their issue is becoming your issue now, and you are sitting in your heart 
by thus keeping this grudge. It's kind of like the old uh, quote that is often misattributed to the Buddha. Holding a grudge is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. A popular geopolitical figure of the 20th century, Nelson Mandela, has an amazing story about forgiveness. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison. He was falsely accused and falsely imprisoned as being an insurrectionist in South Africa. Something that had to be an incredibly personal insult to who he was, given how much he cared about and fought for South Africa. In 1990, with a change of power in South Africa, he was released, and in 1994, he was elected president. After 27 years when the Western world had not seen Nelson Mandela, they didn't know how he aged or his attitude to be, he gave a speech in which he was quoted as saying this, As I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Think about how powerful that is. And Nelson Mandela realized the need for forgiveness and reconciliation with the country that had just imprisoned him for 27 years. And I think that it was eventually properly rectified. Would it have been had Nelson Mandela had a bitter attitude? Perhaps not. So what does Jesus say about forgiveness? Well, there's a parable that I think we all know, but it bears repeating. And in my uh, work this week, I realized a couple of things that I never really thought of before. So I want us to go to Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. You're welcome to follow along with me, or I will read, um, read along. And that is Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. The parable of the unmerciful servant. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Your version might say seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, or talents, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, or a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from, or sister from your heart. So that parable alone could pretty well be its own sermon or probably its own sermon series if you really wanted to get into it. But there are a couple things I want to point out. In the very first verse of that parable, Peter asks about forgiveness. Now, Peter asks about forgiveness in the same way a child might ask, hey, would it be bad if I insert whatever verb they already did or are going to do anyways? 
Peter is looking for an out here to say, okay, so can I stop forgiving the eighth time? If you're forgiving someone, waiting to hit that point that you can stop forgiving them, that's not forgiveness. And Christ won't do that. He won't give him this number. Instead, he says 77 or 70 times 7. Now, again, that's not to say that on the 78th time, you go ahead and not forgive him. What he's doing is he's saying it's a number not even worth keeping track, that we ought to be in the habit, in the spirit of being willing to forgive. This is what Christ is getting at here. Now, when we actually look at the story in the first servant, the unmerciful one, I always thought it was interesting how in the world a servant could rack up a debt that equaled $10 million. Wouldn't you think the master would have stopped lending him money at some point? But as I was reading a commentary, they had mentioned that the, uh, the, the implication here is likely that the servant had some sort of access to the funding that belonged to the king. He might have been a treasurer or perhaps even a guard of his actual vault, that he actually might have stolen or embezzled this money from the king. Another thing that we often think to is we often associate, we tie forgiveness with repentance. If you take a look at that first servant, he doesn't repent. He doesn't say, I'm sorry I did not pay back this debt. I'm sorry that I stole this money from you. Please forgive me. He says, wait, I'll pay you back. This is a bold-faced lie. He has nothing to offer. There's no way he can possibly pay back this debt. But yet he's going to double down on his wrongdoings and say, I'll pay you back. How much more merciful now is the master that not only did he cancel that debt, he canceled that debt not even been asked to forgive. Then when he goes out to find this other servant, now 100 denarii would have been about a third of a year's wage for a working class Israelite at this point in time. So no amount of money to scoff at, but certainly an insignificant amount of money compared to what he owed his master. And when you think about it, this servant's career as a lender he likely lended the other servant the money he had stolen from his master. While this servant might have had the legal justification to imprison this other servant, he absolutely had no moral authority to do so. And that is where the master decided to then punish this original unmerciful servant. This morning we read from Genesis chapter 45, and we talked about the man of impeccable character, Joseph. As we'll recall, Joseph was one of 12 brothers. Uh, he was most loved by his father, Jacob. And his other brothers, in their jealousy, decided not to kill him, lest they be responsible for his death, but to sell him into slavery with the assumption or the hope that he would eventually just die, anyways, in slavery. It would have been easy to see how Joseph could have been a very, very bitter man, how he could have been harboring all this hatred and anger towards his brothers, towards the Egyptians, or even to God. But as we look at his story we see that given every opportunity to do the wrong thing, the easy thing, he does the right thing, the hard thing. From his time in captivity, he always had good spirits and faith in God. And when he was then enslaved to Potiphar, he managed to work so hard that he was entrusted with Potiphar's household. When Potiphar's wife came onto him, not only did he resist temptation, he fled from the source of temptation. When he was again falsely imprisoned, he still had his faith in his Lord. And then when he was asked to interpret these dreams, while he had that God-given ability, he still pointed credit back to God, saying, our interpretation's not for God, and then offered his services. So at this point, in chapter 45, Joseph has now been exalted to the second-in-command over Egypt. And his brothers have been called back to Egypt, and they are before him now. So, faced with the men that sold him for dead, Joseph has a couple choices he can make. First, 
he can just say, no, I'm not going to help you. Leave. And if we recall, Joseph had to reveal himself to his brothers, so clearly they don't recognize him yet. So he can do that with really no fault or harm to himself. Or, we often take for granted some of the uh, basic human rights that we have in America. In ancient Egypt, those rights don't necessarily exist, especially for non-Egyptian citizens like Joseph's brothers. He can have them imprisoned, tortured, executed just because he feels like it. But what does he do here? He makes himself known. He sincerely weeps for them, embraces them, and forgives them. In their terror, they can't even ask for forgiveness, and Joseph says, don't worry about it. But would it have been enough for Joseph simply to say, you're forgiven. Now go back to your family. I'm not going to help you. Instead, he's interested in restoring this relationship. He asks the status of his father and the status of their families and tells them to bring them back to Egypt so he might provide for them. What a man of character that he is willing to not only forgive those that essentially had intended to kill him, but to actually then provide for them in their time of need. And when the Pharaoh finds out about this, he even ups it one more and says they will have the fat of the land. I've said a couple times what forgiveness is not. That is true forgiveness that Joseph has shown to his brothers. Ultimately, Joseph's forgiveness would point us to the example of Christ. I think sometimes it's easy for us to say, well, I didn't sell Joseph into slavery. You know, I didn't imprison my fellow brother for what he owed me. I didn't crucify Jesus. But that attitude completely forgets how ugly sin is to God and how it divorces us from his presence, how they cannot reside in the same location. They cannot reside together in our hearts. Sin is hideous to God, and as the lender, he has the right to choose what the wages will be. And he tells us the wages of sin is death. I like the, um, I really love the Leonard Cohen, Hallelujah, redone to the Christmas lyrics that we had done a couple times. The final verse starts with this, My sin would drive the nails in you. That rugged cross was my cross too. And it paints this picture that we actually, in fact, do owe this debt to our Lord. And that debt did have to be rectified because like the unmerciful servant, we have nothing with which to bargain. There is nothing we can give, nothing we can do, nothing we can say, no actions we can take that will erase or even chip into this debt by its own merit. We need someone to restore this debt, and Jesus did so at his own cost. When I think about that and the implications of that, all of a sudden, the grudges I hold in my life seem much more petty. To know that no one can occur such a debt to me as I have occurred to my Lord, it all of a sudden seems unmerciful and selfish and counter to the nature of God to not make my forgiveness available. The simple truth is this. As Christians, we have no choice but forgiveness. Anything other than making our forgiveness available is in direct contradiction to how we are called to live. I ask that you carry that with you as we go forward in the week. Thank you guys so much for letting me speak with you this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Lord, thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus, that could erase the debt that we never, ever could pay forth. And we thank you so much that you've loved us enough to give us um, this message, to give us this instruction of how we ought to treat our brothers and sisters. I pray as we go forward in this week that we would be able to show forgiveness even on the, even at such a small level in the forgiveness you showed us. Lord, in a world 
in a country, in a community that needs reconciliation. I pray that you would let us be the providers of that peace, that you would let us be willing to have a heart like yours to forgive. So all these things we pray in your name. Amen.